Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 25th, 2021, and this is show number 833. Well, this weekend, Steve and I went to see our kids for our birthdays. They're fully vaccinated, and we've had both show- shots, so we're doing pretty good. I knew we I wouldn't be able to enjoy the grandkids if I had to work on the show during the weekend, so I asked George from Tulsa if he could pull something interesting together for us, and he came through like a champ. I really appreciate him coming through, through for me. You know, I also did a shout out into the uh, Slack group, and it turns out uh, Bruce, also known as Use the Data, and Frank, Frank, also known as Wheels, both sent in articles as well, but I didn't know they were coming. So those are actually going to be next week or the week after. But thank you all for letting me have a relaxing weekend with the family by sending in this great help. This week's guest on Chit Chat Across the Pond is Doc Rock, and he's there with me to talk about the Apple Spring Loaded event. Doc's background in all things Apple as well as high-end live video makes him the perfect person to talk to about this particular event. He explains to me how this color calibration of our TVs using our iPhones and Apple TV will work. We talk about whether the cool colors of the IMAX might be a distraction to photographers. We talk about how the coolest things that got nearly zero airtime was having Ethernet over a MagSafe connector and how much we all want the new keyboard with Touch ID, but how it will only work with M1 Max. In the end, Doc also tries to convince me that I need a one terabyte 12.9 inch iPad Pro. The discussion we had is not a linear walkthrough of the event by any means, but it's more of a meandering talk about what had us interested and we tell stories to each other. I had an absolute blast and I can prove Doc had fun too because he suggested we get together after the next two Apple events this year. I think you'll get a kick out of this this conversation as well, and I really hope you check out this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice. Now, with that said, I have to say it is an absolute miracle that this particular episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond ever got to your feed. First of all, we scheduled our conversation for March 24th because of all the rumor sites that said that there would be an announcement that very week, and then the announcement didn't happen. Then the same rumor site said we'd have an announcement on April 6th, so we scheduled it for that week. Again, no announcement. Finally, Apple announced their spring-loaded event for April 20th, so we scheduled our chit-chat for the following day. In the third problem for this recording, we had a time zone mix-up, and I showed up way before Doc thought we were meeting. The irony of this situation is that while I was waiting for Doc, I worked on an article about my time shifter clock, the design of which is for people to send a time in the future in different time zones when they want to meet. And you guessed it, I didn't use my time shifter clock when I talked to Doc about the time I wanted to meet him. Anyway, when we finally did connect, I showed him the clock and he loved it and he bookmarked it. When I started to uh, tried to start a Skype session with Doc, Skype opened the call window, but it never called him. I tried it three times. I force quit the app. I tried it again, but Skype was having nothing to do with me. I was forced to reboot my Mac while Doc had to wait. After the reboot, Skype allowed me to call Doc. All right, we got to be good now. So finally, it's time to record. I did a test recording. I listened to it and it sounded great. I asked Doc if he'd like to record his own voice so we'd have the best possible recording of him to combine with my recording of me and he agreed. He's all over this recording stuff, so this was pretty easy for him. We started chatting, and 13.5 minutes in, I checked Audio Hijack to see how long we'd been talking, and I hadn't restarted my recording after I ran the test. 
I may have said a non-Girl Scout safe word at that moment that did have to be edited out later. And luckily, Doc checked his and he discovered he was actually recording both of us, not just him. So we had a recording. We decided that as a safety net, I would start recording my voice from that point forward with Audio Hijack. Another 15 minutes into that part of the recording, and I had that horrible looping audio problem I think I've mentioned on the show before. Let me play you a short clip of what I was hearing when I was talking to Doc. It's going to be fantastic out of the box. Let's not get crazy because this just the hardware is just crazy. Early crust intel's dreams. Early crust intel's dreams. Early crust intel's dreams. Early crust intel's dreams. Okay, isn't that lovely? This happening during a Skype call was actually good news. This exact problem has happened three times before, but it only happens during the live show. Trying to figure out which of the, I don't know, 26 apps I've run for the live show has been impossible, which one of those could be causing it. Mimo Live and Hindenburg are complex applications for video and audio, and they run during the live show, along with three different apps from Rogue Amoeba, Audio Hijack, SoundSource, and Loopback. I've been in discussion with all of the companies, but now I know that the only vendor between the plain Skype call and the live show, the only vendor that's common is Rogue Amoeba. So I know it's something from Rogue Amoeba causing this, but we still don't know what it is. With the problem I'm having, that looping simply doesn't stop. But from Doc's perspective, he wasn't able to tell that anything was wrong. Obviously, I wasn't able to understand a word he was saying, but I figured out that he could hear me clearly, so I took off my headphones and I wrapped them around my mic so that he could hear what I was hearing. I really wish I'd been recording video so you could have seen the look on his face when he heard it. Well, I couldn't give up this opportunity to capture some data about the problem to give to Rogue Amoeba, so I left Doc ha- uh, hanging while I pulled a sample from Activity Monitor for Audio Hijack before quitting both Audio Hijack and Skype and reconnecting to Doc. I'm glad it happened with someone who does the same kind of work because he took it completely in stride. I keep thinking how my interviews at CSUN would have gone if this had happened during one of those. After that, it was clean sailing for the rest of the recording, and Doc pulled the audio from his Rodecaster Pro and he sent it off to me. And the file was five megabytes. If you know anything about audio, it's not possible for an hour-long conversation to be five megabytes. Doc checked again and discovered the right file, and we both sighed with relief. After we hung up, I started working on editing the audio. Luckily, with the Rodecaster Pro, he was able to make markers in the file for me where the problems had occurred, and it made it far easier for me to work on the editing. Right around that time, Steve wandered by, and I told him how delighted I am with the new lamp he got me for my studio. So I'm still working on the audio, and he's coming in, and we're talking about the studio. My old one was pretty ugly, and the glass was broken on a couple of the bowls around the light, so he got me this new one for my birthday, and he had just put it together while I was chatting with Doc. I noticed that there was a little sticker on one of the plastic areas, and he offered to take it off for me, and of course, it left some residue on the plastic. He brought in some goof-off to remove the glue, and I'm not sure why it bothered me so much, but the smell was horrible. And I don't mean it smelled bad. I mean, unbreathably bad. I mean, I could taste it bad. I had to run out of the room and stop editing the audio from the conversation with Doc. I couldn't stand it. After a while, I came back in. I held my breath while I set up a fan to blow those noxious fumes out the window. Now, I should mention that we didn't have any the window open very far because Steve took our screens out to be replaced, and we knew if we opened the window any farther, one of our idiot cats would climb out on the roof. The only good thing about this whole story is it didn't end with a cat out on the roof. 
But I did have one last problem. I got the audio edited in spite of everything, attached it to Feeder, and I pushed the audio up. I verified that the episode showed up in Overcast just fine. Then I hit preview on the blog post, and I double-checked that I could play the audio file from the webpage, and it said file not found. Oh, come on. How could it be working in my podcatcher, but the file not work on the blog? I use a text expander snippet to create the URL for the webpage, so it can't be wrong. Well, it turns out it can be, because sometimes I forget which show I'm publishing, and I use the NoSillaCast text expander snippet instead of the chit-chat across the pond snippet, but sadly, that wasn't the problem this time. I stared and stared and stared at that URL, and I couldn't see what was wrong with it. I needed to look at what the, what the podcast feed thought the URL was, because obviously it's working. The easiest way for me to see the feed is to open the URL inside of Firefox. For some reason, Firefox doesn't render it, but it shows you the raw text instead. If you want to try it out yourself, you could go find the, the URL in the show notes. Anyway, with the feed open, I compared the URL for the enclosure character by character until I got all the way to the very end, and I discovered that the file I had uploaded was the AAC file, you know, .m4a extension, not an MP3. That meant I never ran off phonic leveler on the file because that does the MP3 transcoding for me. This means that the file doesn't meet the loudness standards, but luckily we both have great mics and the levels were set well, so the audio came out pretty good. Now, the reason my podcast player could play this M4A file, but the blog could not, is because on my blog post, my text expander snippet very carefully types in MP3 for the file extension and file type. After I fixed that, it was finally working on the blog. In nearly 16 years of podcasting, I have never had that many things go wrong with the podcast recording, and I hope that record stands for a very long time. I recently walked you through the process Steve and I went through to deal with a Synology disk station that was running out of space. I ended the story by explaining that I pulled two of the four terabyte drives, replaced them with eight terabyte drives, which gained me four terabytes in the Synology. Then I bought a dual bay RAID enclosure from OWC. Our plan was to pull two terabytes of old raw video footage and put it on the RAID enclosure. For the cost of two drives in the enclosure, we'd gain six terabytes total. When I finished explaining our strategy, I was awaiting the RAID enclosure's arrival, so we'll pick up our story right there. The Synology DS1019 Plus sports a USB 3.0 port on the front and one on the back, so I didn't bother buying the snazziest new OWC RAID enclosure that has, you know, Thunderbolt and 4 and all this kind of stuff. Maybe it's Thunderbolt 3. Anyway, this older one was going to be fine. I purchased the OWC Mercury Elite Pro Dual 2-Bay USB 3.0 RAID enclosure for $89 from B&H Photo. I don't get to do much hardware work these days, so I was looking forward to getting my hands dirty, you know, as dirty as they get handling electronics. Now, I'm spoiled by the ease of adding and removing drives from the Synology, where it is literally a toolless process. The drives can be removed by tilting a lever and then pulling off two basic uh, little plastic constraints that hold the drives in place by their side screw holes. I envisioned the OWC enclosure being much the same. I thought there'd be two sets of guide rails into which I would slide the five and a quarter inch hard drives with their connectors seating automatically. Instead, working on the OWC enclosure felt like the good old days. There were two sets of SATA, SATA connectors hanging on long wires along with a pair of power and data connector wires for each of the two drives. 
The instructions said to drop one hard drive all the way into the enclosure, connect its two cables, and then drop the second one on top and connect its cables, and only then use the screws on the side to secure the hard drives. That is a completely impossible process. I was surprised at the amount of contortion required to twist the connector wires literally 180 degrees from their resting positions, and I had to fight between the two pairs because they were intertwined. I say the process described was impossible because there's no way you could execute it with the drive already dropped into the enclosure. The drive simply had to be suspended in the air in order to seat the connectors successfully. I also disobeyed the instructions on when to put both drives in before securing their side screws. It would have been much harder to slightly lift the lower drive to move it into position to align the mounting holes. I'm a rebel, so I even rotated the enclosure onto its side, unlike what they said to do, so that the drives would stay in place while I let gravity easily drop the screws into the holes. I do have to say that when the enclosure is reassembled, it is really adorable and compact, considering it has two full-size drives inside. As I said in the last article, it looks like a tiny cheese grater Mac Pro. It's quite adorable. The OWC enclosure I purchased has eSATA as well as USB 3.1 Gen 1 ports. It comes with its own device cable with USB 3 Type-B to connect to the, to the enclosure and USB Type-A to connect to the Synology. Now, Stephen Getz told me after I did all of this that my Synology had an eSATA uh, connector, so I could have used that. But anyway, it came with this uh, USB 3 Type-B connector. Sadly, the cable was only two feet long, which isn't near long enough to place the enclosure where I want it. In fact, the OWC enclosure has to sit on the ground outside of our cabinet because that cable was too short to reach to the back of the Synology. A quick trip to Monoprice and $5 plus shipping got me a six-foot replacement, so I was able to put it into our, uh, you know, our little cabinet. Now that the hardware is assembled, it's time to set up the drives as a RAID array. My plan was to set it to RAID 1, which means the drives would be mirrored, but the data would be mirrored between the two drives. Now, this isn't as good as a true backup from one to the other, but if one drive failed, we'd still have all of the data. Now, I've only ever read about built-in hardware RAID, so I didn't really know how to configure the drives after the hardware assembly was complete. Steve noticed a little dial on the back plane of the enclosure that indicated the RAID level, so I rotated it to RAID 1, connected the drive bay to my Mac, and booted it up. I got two pop-ups telling me that the two drives were not formatted in a way my Mac could read. I'd sort of expected some sort of magic to occur, and we'd just see a single drive magically formatted when I turned it on. That's not what happened. I opened Disk Utility, and I formatted them both as macOS Extended Journal on Stephen Gatt's advice. And again, expected the RAID enclosure to do its magic, but instead, now I got two separately formatted drives on my desktop, but at least my Mac could read them now. The OWC enclosure came with a small manual, but it was targeted at people who bought it populated with drives. I found the full manual online, which explained that after changing the RAID dial to the desired setting, there's a set button you're supposed to push, and only then will it do its magic. In just a minute or two, I had only one 4TB unrecognized drive. Progress! Back to Disk Utility to format that one as macOS Extended Journaled, also known as HFS+. Now I had a single RAID 1 read-writable drive on my desktop. I'm sure many of you knew this process uh, that, that I should have followed, but those who haven't done any hardware or software RAID, I figured my uninformed process of discovery might be valuable. Now, the Synology has a tool called FileStation, which is, think of it as like Finder on the Mac or File Explorer on Windows. 
Stephen Goetz told me that when the drive was plugged into the Synology, I'd see it in file station as USB share one. That's sort of what happened. Evidently, making the two drives into a single RAID 1 drive created two partitions. So I see USB share 1-1 and USB share 1-2. I open the external device's control panel, and it shows one single drive, which was more comforting. Toggling the downward chevron next to the single drive reveals those same two partitions. USB share 1-1 is 197 megabyte partitions formatted as VFAT, which is a format I'd never even heard of before. I did a wee bit of the Googles, and I found that it has something to do with booting to EFI. The USB share 1-2 is the one I intentionally made that's formatted HFS+. This confirmed that everything is working properly, but I hope that first partition doesn't confuse us at some point when I forget this entire story. Now that we have this fancy new drive ready, it's time to get working uh, to moving that two terabytes of old data off of the Synology and onto the little RAID array. This was going to be a bit of a task for Steve. His plan was to move things like old conference coverage to the RAID array. He saves both the final video he publishes, as well as all of the source data, the raw source data. He may want to go back and remix something at a later date, so he doesn't want to throw this data away, but the chances of needing it right away on a NAS device are slim. He set up a spreadsheet to record what he was going to move and to track how much storage he would be able to save on the Synology and also on the Drobo that backs up this data. As things like this often go, he started doing a little bit of spring cleaning while he was at it. He identified several projects he could completely delete, but then he asked me to go into his office to look at something. He pointed at FileStation on the Synology and asked, what is this hash recycle thing? You can only imagine the face palm we both did at that moment when we realized there's a recycle bin on the Synology. We've only had the Synology for nine months, but every single thing we ever deleted was sitting in that recycle bin. But it gets worse. Remember that I back up the Synology to a Drobo 5N2 using Carbon Copy Cloner. That means Carbon Copy Cloner was copying the recycle bin for every one of our file shares to the Drobo, which is also running out of space. But it's even worse than that. Carbon Copy Cloner has a really useful feature called Safety Net. Let's say you have 10 files on your internal drive, and you back them up to an external drive with cop Carbon Copy Cloner. Then let's say you delete two of the files on the internal drive, and you run the backup again. If you have Safety Net enabled on the destination drive when Carbon Copy Cl Cloner runs the backup, it will recognize that those two files got deleted, but instead of throwing them away, it puts them in a separate folder called Safety Net. If you run out of space on the destination drive, it will start to purge the Safety Net folder. So now realize what we've been doing. We delete the files on the Synology, which puts them in the recycle bin. Carbon Copy Cloner backs up the Synology to the Drobo, backing up not just the recycle bin, but also moving those exact same deleted files into the safety net folder. So now, not only does the Drobo have the deleted files, it also has two copies of everything we have ever deleted. At one point, I checked just Steve's large video folder on the Drobo, on which we had stopped using Carbon Copy Cloner a while back, and the recycle bin was 258 gigabytes, and safety net was 1.18 terabytes. <laughs> oh my gosh. So my data is, is mostly audio, so normally I'm not a huge contributor to this problem, but my folder had another 426 gigabytes of data in the recycle bin. That is close to two terabytes of stuff we thought we had deleted, but all happily backed up over on the Drobo. 
I still can't get over the fact that we had no idea we were doing this. So once I got over being so uninformed about what I'd been doing, I realized this was tremendously good news. I knew that throwing $400 at my Synology was going to give us breathing room, but that wasn't going to solve the problem on the Drobo. I was worried I'd need to start adding drives on it pretty soon as well. But after getting rid of everything in Hash Recycle and everything in Safety Net from Carbon Copy Cloner and moving the two terabytes of videos off to the RAID drive, I am happy to report that the Synology has nearly 10 terabytes free and the Drobo has 6.2 terabytes free. I feel like we could go ballroom dancing in all that empty space. There was one final step to complete before declaring victory. I went into Carbon Copy Cloner, and for every shared folder on the Synology, I disabled backup of the Recycle folder, and I made careful decisions on whether I wanted safety net on each of these shared folders. In the end, only our financial medical folder got to keep safety net. I normally like to finish my stories with the bottom line of what you should learn from the story I've just told. At the very least, if you ever get a Synology, remember there's a Recycle bin. I hope you learned a little bit about sizing drives for RAID arrays, whether they're in a Synology or a simple two-bade RAID array. And I hope you enjoyed learning all of this along with me. I would like to throw out a special thanks to Wayne Dixon and Rick Snyder for becoming patrons of the Podfeed podcast. These two lovely gentlemen went to podfeed.com slash Patreon, and they made very generous pledges to help support the show. As I mentioned last week, I don't need to make money off the podcast, but it sure would be swell if it didn't cost me so much to do the show. When Amazon dropped me as an affiliate last year, that nearly cut the income in half, so I rely completely on fine patrons like Wayne and Rick to help offset the costs of doing the shows, and the people who do the one-time donations at PayPal. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate your support. In the Programming by Stealth podcast I do with Bart Bouchatz, we had an assignment a while back to create a web app that would show the time in two different cities of their choice. I took the assignment up a notch and added a little slider you could drag to change the time in both cities at the same time. The problem this solves is how to know what time it will be in the future at two different places. Let's say you're trying to tell someone like, I don't know, Doc Rock, what time the next Apple event will be in their time zone at this future time. This would be a perfect tool to solve that problem. I enhanced my app to not just show the time, but the date as well. Bart gave us an additional challenge and asked us to see if we could create a method for someone using our clock to copy the times into a URL that could be sent to someone else. The idea was that the recipient could simply click the link they were sent and they would see the two cities with the same times in them as, the, as they were when the URL was sent. This sounded like a great enhancement to my time-shifting clock. Instead of having to write out an elaborate email with the explanation of the time chosen, I could just send people a link. You can see how cool this clock is at podfeet.com. And there's, of course, a link in the show notes. Now, I told you all about my amazing clock back when I finished it, regaling you with the different technologies I used and the technical decisions I made during the design. But as soon as it was done and officially released as version 1.0, I knew that I wanted my little app to do more. The problem I wanted to solve was how to allow the user to choose more than two cities. Dr. Gary, a resident memory psychologist from New Zealand, loves my clock app because she's often trying to set up meetings with people in different time zones, but she's most often dealing with many people in multiple cities, not just two. The first step was to figure out how to add a button allowing the user to add another city, and I accomplished that part of the code pretty quickly. 
I had to pick a default city for all of the additional clocks, and since Marianne had already complained that the first two were in Los Angeles and Dublin for some reason, I made all subsequent clocks show the time for Auckland, New Zealand. Now, the hard part has been working on modifying the URL that gets copied and sent to someone. Without the pressure of a due date for an assignment, I must admit, I haven't been working very consistently on this app. I didn't realize how long I'd been so occasionally doodling with it until I'd looked up the release date of version 1.0, and it was September of 2019. But hey, 2020 was hard, okay? You know, give me a break. Well, the algorithm in my app that figures out what time it is in a given city uses a very popular JavaScript library called moment.js. When someone types in the name of a city, my app tries to find a match in the city listing, and if it can, it figures out the time using moment.js. When they drag the slider, it just adds hours to the time it already figured out. The URL that I create then contains the name of the city chosen, along with the time and date selected. The city name actually includes the region too, so it would be Europe slash Dublin, for example. I also have a field on the screen that says the time in Europe slash Dublin becomes. Now that needs to be in the URL too, so it can be typed on screen for the recipient. Bart also told us we had to include a toggle for the user to view the time in either 12 or 24 hour format. I figured that since I was letting the user send all that other info, why not let them send the time in the format they'd chosen? I had all of this working in version 1.0 of my time shifter clock app, but my method created a really, really long URL. I just counted, and the URL is 260 characters long to represent the time in Los Angeles and Dublin. Now, I was willing to live with that for version 1.0, but imagine what this URL would look like if Marianne invited five people to her grant review meeting. It would be paragraphs long, and nobody would click it. They would assume it was spam, or at least I would. When Bart was working on his clock app, along with the rest of the class, he didn't put the time of both cities in the URL. Instead, he put the absolute time chosen in Coordinated Universal Time, also known as UTC. Both clocks on the page could have their time calculated relative to UTC by using the time offset that Moment.js can give us. Dorothy did her clock this way as well. I knew that using UTC would dramatically simplify my URL. I'm very pleased to say that I did not copy their code, even though I know I had access to it and I could have copied it. In fact, I didn't even look at how they did it. I used the documentation to figure it out how to get moment.js to do the time offset for me. I also figured out how to put the line time in Dublin becomes into the clocks without having to repeat it in the URL. The URL would then simply contain the time in UTC and then the two plus city names. It would be ever so much more readable because you'd see that most of it was just a listing of the city names. I wrote a little side program to prove to myself that given time in UTC, I could convert it back to any city I wanted, so I got all of that worked out. Once I knew I could conquer the time math with UTC, I figured out how to create a button for the user to add more cities, change the defaults, and get the slider to shift all of the times. The button to copy the URL worked perfectly to copy the times in UTC and the names of all the cities. I was cooking with gas now. But there's one big problem to be solved. When the recipient clicks the URL they've been sent, I had to figure out how to pull the city names and UTC times out of the URL and shove them back into my clocks. Now, I'd done this before with two clocks, but since I knew there were only two, I had hardwired the variable names of the clocks into my code. I named them SC1 and SC2. 
Well, now I have to have my code check that URL and find any number of clocks. There might be two, but Marianne might invite 28 people to hear her fascinating grant proposal, right? So I'm looking at this URL and trying to figure out how do I find matches for the strings when I don't know how many there will be. Great Scott! This is a perfect time for regular expressions. This was too good to be true that two weeks in a row I would get to use regular expressions. I got into my thinking chair, that's the one that won't let me touch a keyboard, and I pulled out my trusty physical copy of the Taming the Terminal book yet again. I didn't know exactly which regular expression I was looking for, so I just opened the book to chapter 17 and I started to read. In Bart's explanation of where regular expressions can help, he says, The key point is that if you can describe a pattern as a series of elements that follow one another, then you should be able to write a regular expression to represent that pattern. Well, I certainly can describe a pattern for finding the city names. The city names will be preceded by the letters SC, followed by one or more digits, followed by an equal sign, and then inside quotes will be the region slash city name. Clearly, a regular expression was called for. A few paragraphs in, though, I read the quote Bart loves to say about regular expressions. The fact that many programmers don't understand the limitations of regular expressions has led to the incorrect maxim that if you have a problem and you try to solve it with regular expressions, that you then have two problems, your original problem and a regular expression. Well, anyway, I knew that it was important to relearn it properly. I would end up right where Bart said I'd be with a problem and a regular expression. I kept reading and studying, and eventually I had a list of different approaches to the problem. I let myself get out of my thinking chair, and I went to regex101.com to start testing out some of my regular expression ideas on a sample URL with three cities. I did not succeed. I got frustrated and finally decided to try the Googles for some help with regular expressions. Now, here's the really funny part. Regular expressions are not the solution to this problem after all. I tried all kinds of search terms for how I was trying to make a match in regular expressions, and finally I just happened to include the term URL in my search on Google. It turns out there's a perfectly lovely method in JavaScript called URL search params that is designed to do exactly what I want to do. With URL search params, you create an object and then query that URL. There's even a built-in feature that allows you to iterate through the URL looking for the, burial, the variables you seek. Reading through the documentation, it says URL search params.entries returns an iterator allowing iteration through all key value pairs included in this object. This is exactly what I needed. I didn't know how many cities would be in the URL, so I needed to iterate through it to find them all. And this method already knew the pattern I was looking for because URLs all have the same pattern of key value pairs. But here's the funny part. When I look back through my version one code, I had used URL search params to find information in my URL. But this is not a failure on my part. It's a sign that I'm a real developer. Because think about the progression of events here. I knew a tool that I thought could solve my problem. So I studied the documentation to see if it was the correct tool. Instead of persisting at using a wrench to drive in a nail, I kept digging until I found the right tool. Now, it would have been less embarrassing if I hadn't found the tool in the bottom of my own toolbox. But even at that, I studied the, the documentation for it, and I discovered something new that I didn't know that it could do. I didn't know it had an iterator. From the very beginning, Bart has stressed to us that he's teaching us to program, not teaching us a specific language. He's also continuously stressed the importance of learning to read the documentation. He reminds us that he looks up things all day long himself. 
This method of teaching means none of us feel stupid when we don't know something. We feel mighty when we solve a problem, even if it's discovering something we already partly knew. Now, I haven't gotten my URL query working just yet, but I know I'll solve this. A few years ago, I would bang my head against the wall of programming with no idea how to proceed. Now I inch along, fixing little things, making big discoveries, but I seem to always move forward. I'm learning, and I'm having fun, and I feel powerful. It doesn't get better than that, does it? Well, next up, we've got George from Tulsa, and he's got a story that just also happens to be about Synology, but it's from a completely different perspective, perspective, and I think it's really interesting. So let's have a listen. On March 24th, 2020, Tulsa issued a COVID stay-at-home order. As I locked our office door that night, I had no idea when I'd be back. My real concern wasn't work-related. It was the April 19th due date of my daughter's second child, exactly on what was predicted would be the very worst day for COVID hospitalizations in Tulsa. How naive that seems now. Thanks to our office Synology I had set up for remote access months before, I wasn't worried about our ability to work from home. There's two ways to provide remote access to a Synology. The complicated one involves opening router ports, obtaining a static IP address, or subscribing to a service like Dyn DNS, then activating a VPN to provide secure connections and keep randos out. The easy, quick, all-but-point-and-click way is to use Synology's free QuickConnect service. Quick-connected Synologies register their presence with the Synology server and update it whenever an ISP changes its IP address. That's Dyn DNS type service for free. No VPN required. No need to open router ports and expose the Synology to those randos pinging around the net looking for vulnerable ports. This is very similar to, likely exactly the same as, how Apple's MobileMe encrypted connection service worked. There's an obvious point of insecurity in Quick Connect. Synology becomes, by definition, a man in the middle. A computer seeking to connect to a given Synology sends its data encrypted through Synology. Synology's virtual switchboard then identifies the right unit and establishes a connection. In theory, it's possible Synology could read the traffic. I concluded, after watching Father Robert Balliser's recommendation in favor of Quick Connect security, the risk was lower than if I managed to geek out and set up that VPN while leaving router ports open for those randos looking for them. Once a Synology can be accessed by a remote computer, whether Quick Connect or another method, it's possible to enable Synology Drive. Drive works very much like Dropbox. It puts a folder on the local computer and auto-syncs everything in a related shared folder on the Synology. Synology Drive folders can be accessed on multiple systems simultaneously. 
Drive Honors Application File Locking, which helps protect data from being overwritten by blocking access by more than one user to files in programs, like LibreOffice, which enable file locking. Once the drive folders are set up, the files in them are instantly available on local systems because the folder on local computers and the Synology are constantly and automatically synced. This means files can be shared with authorized users across the net without putting them in a third-party cloud simply by adding them to a Synology drive folder. This is an enormous time saver. It means users can work directly from files accessed with local speed, but which, when saved, automatically transfer to the Synology and then to other users. Pretty much ends the questions, do you have the latest version? Set up correctly, everything is encrypted and can only be accessed through the Synology switchboard server with the correct user configurable ID for the Synology unit, the complex user-created password, and, yes, a Google Authenticator two-factor code unique to that Synology. I'll close with a brief overview of Synology Backup. Thanks to Synology Drive, our main working files, which are all in Drive, are simultaneously stored on multiple computers. Several computers and the Synology itself could die at the same time, and all the files would still be available on more than one local system. Our main Synology is the same 1019 Plus model Allison and Steve have. But even with decades of work files and scans of whole drawers of legal documents, our work files fit comfortably within the two terabytes provided by five 500-gigabyte Samsung SSDs. That 1019 backs up daily to an older DS213 Plus model stored in our office's file-proof vault. I also regularly back up the 1019 to local USB-connected drives I rotate in and out of the vault. Whatever the backup target, hyper-backup creates an impenetrable encrypted blob file type .hbk. I tried every method I could to open one without success, which doesn't promise a three-letter agency couldn't do better. After the original is on the drive, subsequent backups are incremental. Users can specify how many incremental updates to keep to save storage. If needed, it's easy to access an HBK blob using Synology's free Hyper Backup Explorer program available in versions for Mac, Linux, and Windows. Mac users are familiar with such blobs as the Hyper Backup HBK file works much like an encrypted DMG. When mounted, it's pretty much like reading a normal external drive. Synology makes it relatively easy to back up to a cloud service. As COVID cases started rising, I decided to add a cloud backup to ours and chose Google Drive, 
which is free in our grandfathered Google for Charities account. My original backup to Google required two days, nine hours, eight minutes, and three seconds. Thursday's nightly incremental backup took just four minutes and 40 seconds. It's possible to backup one Synology to another over the internet using Quick Connect. I had the office Synology doing that to mine at home, but I must have changed a security setting on one or both as the backup now times out instead of backing up. Curiously, it does fine when the two Synologies are both attached to the office local network. As I conclude this, I've just received an email from the office Synology. There's a lightning storm over the city, which is probably why the Synology briefly switched to its stout, uninterruptible power supply. Be sure to have one and check its status and battery condition. I'm providing some helpful Synology links you'll find in Allison's show notes at podfeet.com. Well, thanks for that, George. That's a, that's an interesting thing. I learned a lot listening to George. Uh, for example, I did not know that, that I could do two-factor authentication. So I have just set that up on my Synology because it was kind of bothering me that Quick Connect seemed a little bit, uh, I don't know, not enough security wrapped around that for what I wanted. So now I've got two-factor authentication going. And uh, there's something else he taught me in that, but I can't remember what it is right now. But uh, there's so much to these Synologies. It's really fun to learn from people who know way more than I do. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions. We haven't had a dumb question in a really long time. Dumb questions are those questions where you think that everybody else probably knows the answer, but you don't. It's not for the hard questions. These are the dumb questions I like. Anyway, you can send those in. Your everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Please remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to go to Patreon, become a cool patron of the Podfeet podcast? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to try that one-time donation thing? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our community? You can do that in Slack at Podfeet.com slash Slack or in Facebook at Podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to Podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.